following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 5 as we continue our study in this epistle, 1 Corinthians 2, reading the first five verses. Hear God's Word. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our Father, we do cry out to You for the anointing of Your Spirit, for the work of Your Spirit in our hearts and minds, how we confess that we need Your Spirit to apply Your Word to our lives, to transform us by it, to conform us to Your will, to lift us up to behold You, to fill us with renewed faith in Your Word, and in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray through Him. Amen. About six months ago, there was an interview in World Magazine in which Marvin Olowski, one of the editors of World, interviewed Pastor Mark Dever, who has an earned Ph.D. from Cambridge University, but who has been the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. for over 20 years now, a church that's only really a stone's throw from the Capitol building down there. And it was an interesting interview about how Mark Dever was called to be a pastor and his testimony about that. And then Marvin Olowski tried to get him to talk about some controversial areas. And what is it like to pastor a church where in... Dever's own words, um, some members are loud Republicans and some are loud Democrats. That would be an interesting experience. And what Pastor Dever says is that uh, he doesn't know if his congregation even knows which party he belongs to, and he didn't tell Marvin Olowski. And so Marvin Olowski tried to get him to talk about some other things like that. In fact, uh, he mentioned that one of his members as a high official in government and called him on the phone about his advice on torture and waterboarding. And um, Mark Dever didn't tell Marvin Olowski what he told him. He purposely stepped back. And Marvin Olowski said, I want to ask you some things that you're hesitant to talk about. And he says, ask me after I'm retired. (laughs) But he does tell him this, he does tell him this little story. He says, a senator once asked me, 
what he should do on a specific budget matter. And I had a very strong opinion, but said, I could tell you what I think about this, but I have a responsibility in your life to tell you about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. I am not wrong on that. I could be wrong on this other thing. So you exercise your responsibility as best you can, and I'll exercise mine. Interesting. I thought about that for a while. I thought, well, I guess he didn't give him his advice. He didn't want to undermine his important position as a herald of the gospel. And he goes on in the interview to basically say the main work, his main work is to open the Bible and tell the people what God's word says. Here in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us a glimpse of his mindset and his example as a preacher of the gospel. And we are taught some very clear principles about evangelism, about preaching, about salvation, which apply to preachers and teachers, certainly, but also which apply to every one of us. We saw last time in 1 Corinthians that a lot of the end of chapter 1, and then it goes over to the beginning of chapter 2, this great contrast between the wisdom of the world, the world's wisdom, and the wisdom of God, and the complete uselessness of worldly wisdom in eternal matters, in leading a person to God in salvation through Jesus Christ. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says it this way, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And now he is further demonstrating and expounding upon this point. And in chapter 2, he is reminding them of how he came to them and how he acted in bringing the gospel to them in the first place. Actually, most commentaries will tell you that there probably shouldn't be a chapter division at the end of chapter 1 where it comes in our English Bibles. It probably should come at the end of chapter 2, verse 5. So he's still demonstrating this great contrast, summarizing that salvation doesn't depend on worldly wisdom. It doesn't depend on worldly status or rank or power or wealth or greatness, but salvation depends on God alone, on His grace and initiative. And now he kind of takes that point one step beyond that, and he says, salvation does depend only on the power of the Holy Spirit making the preaching of the gospel effectual in its hearers, the power of the Spirit working through the Word of God. That is what makes evangelism effective. And God uses those means to bring about new life in a sinner's heart. And so there are these two ingredients, we might say, the Word of God, the gospel, and the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul reminds the Corinthians about in chapter 2. And they need to be reminded about this. This is really part of a larger context from early on in chapter 1, the whole way through chapter 4, because he's launching into and addressing great divisions 
in the Corinthian church, and we'll get to that eventually. But here he's laying the foundation again, or we would say he's reminding them of their foundation in the gospel alone. They needed to be reminded. And it's interesting how much time or how much writing Paul has spent on this subject of worldly wisdom and its utter vanity, its uselessness. No doubt it's because not only did the Corinthians need to hear about that, but the church of every age desperately needs to hear that and not revert to relying on human opinions and philosophies. There's always the tendency in the life of the church for the gospel to be obscured more and more. That problem, that decline has always plagued the church. So we want to look at this passage in more depth in these two main parts and see how Paul's example illustrates what he's saying. And number one, salvation doesn't depend on the wisdom of man, but on the message of the gospel. Salvation doesn't depend on worldly wisdom, but on the message of the gospel. And then secondly, salvation doesn't depend on human persuasiveness, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to look at each element, each side of this truth, very basic truths, but very important. So first of all, salvation depends on the message of the gospel, not human wisdom. He uses a negative here. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. But he's going to say in verse 2 what he did. So he doesn't use lofty speech or wisdom, eloquence or superior wisdom. In other words, the Greeks loved speakers who could dazzle them with their eloquence. We don't stop to think about that very much because we're not a culture that's really oriented toward speakers. We're a visual culture. We have movies. We have television. We have iPhones. We've got the internet, all these things. It reminds me of President Lincoln giving the Gettysburg Address, and apparently the speech, if you know anything about that, before him was over an hour long and was very eloquent. Everybody was wowed by it. And Lincoln came with his very brief Gettysburg Address, and people even were so surprised that he was already done. They just thought he was getting going. The Greeks were very much like that. They liked a display of eloquence. They liked to be moved by it. And Paul says that he did not come to the Corinthians in this manner, with persuasive speech in this way but that only enables the listener to go away with maybe being moved emotionally, but not being really given new life in Christ. Maybe you've heard preaching of this type, that the gospel is not there, but maybe there's a very moving story, and the preacher tells it with great eloquence, and you can't help but be moved, and maybe there are people wiping away tears but the content isn't the testimony of God. Or maybe it's the Norman Vincent Peale kind of power of positive thinking. Some of you older folks know about that. That was uh, very much in vogue at one point. That was the idea that whatever you want to do, be positive about it, think you can do it, and you can do it. 
Well, that may have a limited result and may be relatively good in some kind of way, but the problem is it's not the gospel, and it denies the problem of sin. We can't always do it because we are sinners, and we need the grace of God alone. And so it's not a matter of human eloquence or wisdom, but positively, Paul says, he declared the testimony of God. Notice, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What was this testimony that Paul came proclaiming? The testimony of God is, is God testifying. It is the Word of God, and the, the foundational content of that testimony is, in verse 2, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's not human opinion. It's objective truth. It's about the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, and then the central aspect of that is the work of Christ, His life on our behalf, Him dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Christ Jesus and Him crucified. We could say that's the summary of God's great redemptive plan. Was this something that Paul only preached at Corinth, as if you were special, I preached this to you, but elsewhere I preached all these other things? No. This was his common practice, his usual practice everywhere where he preached. He preached the gospel, and he's reminding them how soon they forgot that what counts is not eloquence of human speech or persuasiveness in that sense. What counts is that it's the testimony of God. There's a story about this. I don't know where this came from, but there's apparently a story about an old chapel in England where the inscription above the door read, We preach Christ crucified. And in that church's heyday, that's what it preached. And God blessed the ministry of that church. And then the story goes, Ivy started to grow up the walls of that church. And after a number of years, Ivy obscured the last word. We preach Christ, but the crucified part was left off. And so the story says the church preached Christ as a teacher, as an example, as a perfect man, as the new starting point in the development of the human race, all these kinds of things, but lost the central truth about Christ crucified, Christ dying and rising again that we might be saved, the substitutionary atonement, we would call it. And then eventually the ivy grew more and covered over the word Christ. And so what it read was, we preach. And so the story goes, the church began to preach politics and economics and social action and humanitarianism and philosophy and on and on. And the, the point of the illustration is that when the church moves away from the preaching of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the power and the impact and the life-changing salvation of the gospel message disappears as well. And all you're left with is useless, lifeless human philosophy. And finally, you're left with the words we preach. And you know that when that's the case, the sermons get really short, and they get really sweet, and you don't have to really have much preaching at all. 
We don't come to worship God to hear another opinion. I've got lots of opinions. I can tell you these. I maybe shouldn't tell you all of them, but maybe I should be more like Pastor Dever, who doesn't want to obscure his position as a proclaimer of the Word of God. But you can get opinions all the time. And it's really an incredible thought to me to think that any preacher could stand up and preach to a congregation without being certain that he preaches the Word of God, that this is the very Word of God. If I didn't believe that this was the Word of God, I wouldn't stand up here because I don't have anything to offer you more than what you yourself have. But we have the Word of God when we come to the Word of God and we worship God and we all together humble ourselves before the preaching of the Word of God. We trust the Spirit of God to be present with us that even Jesus Christ himself would be preaching through the humble means of a human being with weaknesses and failings, giving the Word of God. And What a glorious thing it is that God so works in our midst. The core of preaching or the core of evangelism, we would say, is declaring the testimony of God, lovingly telling people, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ, the person, the work of Christ, the salvation offered in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about being a steward of the gospel in this sense. And there he says that, um, he says, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He talks about the mercy that he's been given. And in, in, in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1, he says, others should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. We've all been given a stewardship. Preachers and teachers especially are given that. You have been entrusted with the gospel. If you've come to know Christ, we are called to be faithful, to tell that to others around us. The goal is faithfulness so that the true meaning of the Bible is made plain. It's interesting that in 2 Timothy, here's the Apostle Paul near the end of his life talking to Timothy, his son in the faith, and who he's groomed to be one of the ones who would carry on the gospel to the generation to come. And he charges Timothy in chapter 4. He charges him in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing, he says, preach the word, Be ready in season and out. He goes on to say, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. What an analogy, having itching ears. If you have itching ears, what do you want to do? I guess scratch. He said, people will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, in a sense, scratch those itching ears. They will, they will teach and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That passage is always a very sobering one for me because it says what tends to happen again and again in the history of the church is that the church moves away from the clear, convicting, demanding, searching, penetrating, humbling Word of God and the gospel. 
and begins, the church tends to want to find someone who can scratch their itching ears, tell them what they want to hear uh, with opinions that make them feel comfortable and self-satisfied and justified and okay just where they are in their life, not having to do serious business with God through faith in Christ. And there will be preachers willing to do that. It's a very sad thing when a local congregation declines to that point. And no wonder then, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, for I decided, and maybe your translation says, for I determined. There's, a, there's, this, there's this sense of, of resolve. Paul is resolved. It's not that he doesn't know anything else. Paul was taught about many things. He was very advanced in education. He knew a lot. But he was resolved. He had decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He knew that mere opinion was useless in bringing salvation and that only the message of the gospel had value in truly changing lives. I always like, I always remember the clear story of Charles Spurgeon's conversion. Here was the man who became the prince of preachers in the 1800s, one of the most famous preachers of all times. And here he was, a young man, a boy raised in a Christian home, raised with a grandfather who was a pastor. And, And he would go on to say that he believes that he had heard the gospel as a boy and as a young man hundreds and hundreds of times. He had read some of the best Christian books on evangelism. He had read Doddridge's Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. He had read Baxter's Call to the Unconverted and Aligns Alarm to Unconverted Sinners. And, but he was under conviction at one point as a young man, as a teenager. And he decided he would start going to every church in town. So he just wanted to hear what the gospel was. And he talks about going to all these different churches and hearing all kinds of things preached. But he goes on in his testimony in his book to say that it took God to send a snowstorm to save him. I'll read you in his own words. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a place of worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. So here he is trying to go to the church he had planned to go to, and the snow is getting too bad. So he turns down a side street and ends up in this little church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved and if they could tell me that. I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up. I like that. He was snowed up, not snowed in. He snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really not. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. 
There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. My dear friends, this is a very simple text. Indeed, it says, look. Now, look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You might be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he says in his broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Looking unto me, I am sweating drops of great blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Aren't you glad I don't do that? (laughs) Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. He goes on to describe his salvation. He believes, he counts it to that very hour. And he says not everyone can account their salvation to a specific hour, but he says, I know that is the sermon, that is the time that God used me. And my point in speaking about that is because it was using an instrument that was so weak It was so evident that it was the power of the Spirit at work in the simple testimony of God about Jesus Christ. And here was a pulpit supply pastor who probably wasn't educated at all about these things, but was used by God in the conversion of one of the greatest preachers who would ever live. So we see that salvation is does not depend on worldly wisdom, but on the testimony of God. Our second point is this. Salvation depends on the power of the Holy Spirit, not on human persuasiveness or power. And that certainly came out in what Spurgeon experienced. But notice how we see this in verses 3, 4, and 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in 
the power of God. Here's the mighty Apostle Paul speaking and describing how he felt and how he viewed his own strength as he preached the gospel. And he says, here's how I look at myself. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. They give us a glimpse into how Paul viewed his ministry and how he saw no power in and of himself. It's not that the Apostle Paul didn't know how to be persuasive. Certainly, his writings, his sermons were persuasive, and he used general means of trying to persuade others. If you look at him in his sermon in the book of Acts before King Agrippa, Agrippa says, Paul, you would persuade me. So, certainly, there was a sense in which Paul's speech was persuasive, but what he's saying here is, I didn't rely on that. And certainly, I didn't use the elaborate methods of Greek oratory to just turn someone's emotions. We have to remember and just have a sense of what led up to this point in the apostle's life when he came to Corinth. Remember, he had been at Philippi, and he'd been thrown in prison there and beaten, and there was that earthquake, and the angel opened the doors, and amazing miracle. And then in Thessalonica, there had been much fruit, but they were persecuted by a mob and had to flee at night. And then in Berea, the people there were examining the Scriptures every day to see if these things Paul spoke were according to the Scriptures, and leaders from Thessalonica came, and they agitated the crowd there. And then Silas and Timothy stayed in Thessalonica and Berea, and Paul left, went to Athens, and was so distressed because he saw the idolatry and preached in the Areopagus, and a few became followers of Christ. And then he comes to Corinth. He's alone. He's certainly somewhat discouraged, and he sees the city and the corruption, and we know that the word to Corinthianize had that sense of being very debauched, being very fallen and sinful. And there's opposition there as well. There are conversions as well, but if you read Acts chapter 18, you see that finally the Lord appears to Paul in a dream and encourages him and tells him to continue to preach the gospel. So what is this fear and weakness trembling that Paul speaks about here? Was he talking about fear of human opinion or opposition? Certainly to some degree, but not fundamentally. He knew that his hope was in the Lord. Was he referring to some kind of physical illness or defect or something like that? And certainly he had those too. We think he refers to them in 2 Corinthians, his thorn in the flesh. But the primary thing he's referring to is human insufficiency to change anyone in their heart. This weakness, this fear and trembling had to do with the powerlessness he felt in and of himself. He's saying, I knew that I am and I was unequal to the great task of preaching the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ so that people would be transformed by faith in Christ, by the grace of God. It doesn't mean that he didn't do that or he gave up, but he did deeply feel his own weakness when it came to this. And so there's this fear and trembling 
a phrase that's repeated in the Apostle Paul. And it's clear from this use of the expression elsewhere that Paul is primarily speaking about fear and trembling before his God. Yes, certainly there would have been elements of fear before people, but for the most part, Paul, we know, trusted in the Lord in this regard. It's like in 2 Corinthians 7.15 where he commends the Corinthians for having received Titus with fear and trembling. There's that same phrase. It wasn't that they were afraid of Titus in some way. No, but Titus was coming to them and was a minister of the Word of God. He's talking about a right attitude of receiving him and receiving the Word of God from him in this attitude of reverential awe of God. Or Philippians 2.12, a familiar verse to us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. It's that same phrase. The sense is of living before God in the presence of God, that knowing that all you do, you ultimately are doing it not to please man, but to please God, and in dependence on His power and His power alone. That's what motivated Paul. And here he was at Corinth, and God had called him to preach the gospel. And he was very much aware of his own inadequacy. Don't we all have a real sense of that? When we're praying for a loved one or a friend or someone in our life, and we just have this sense of, oh, Lord, you must change his or her heart. It's not up to me. I can't do it. I wish I could somehow just persuade him or her, but you must give eyes to see a deep sense, an abiding sense of dependence on God that unless God opens hearts, all will be useless. This is the kind of realization that you and I are called to have as well, to fear and tremble before God, to be less fearful of what others might think of us, and to be more fearful in a right reverential sense before God that we seek to glorify Him above all. And even as the Lord appeared to Paul in Acts 18 when he was at Corinth and told him, I am with you and I have many people in this city, a great encouragement for Paul, that the Lord was with him and that Paul knew that the Lord was going to use his testimony of the Word of God, to draw many people to the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is a great encouragement to us as well. We don't have a specific promise like that, like Paul did for a specific time, but God promises that His Word will not not return void. In the words of Isaiah 55, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So as you look out and see spring, and maybe it's going to rain one day this week, and you're going to see the grass shoot up, and the daffodils are already up. Maybe you plant some seeds this spring, and and God's rain comes down, and His sun shines, and He says, use that analogy, and He goes on to say, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Such an encouraging truth that God promises that He will bring the results. And Paul stood in that, in his own weakness, his own inadequacy, but before God, knowing that his speech was not anything great, 
but it was a declaration of the truth of God, and it was in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And I love verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When the Holy Spirit is at work in the Word of God, it brings new life to someone's heart. And that happens over and over again as Christians are confronted with the Word of God, hear the Word of God preached, read it themselves, meditate on it, take it to heart throughout the day. Our faith, our assurance is not in ourselves, but it's founded on the Word of God as the Spirit brings that alive to us by His work in our lives. Thanks be to God, it doesn't depend on human persuasiveness or human wisdom or human power, but on the power of the Holy Spirit. It makes us think, what good is any religion that is based on mere human wisdom? We know that's not what we want. We don't want our faith to be based on flowery words or some philosophical argument. We want our faith to be based on the Word of God itself, based on the testimony of God, a faith that says, all my hope is in God alone. I am helpless, I am sinful, but Jesus Christ crucified, that truth is my joy and my hope, as Spurgeon would go on to say that that day in which that uh, tailor or shoemaker or whatever he was by profession who stood up and preached, looked to Jesus Christ, Spurgeon says, that was the best day of my life. There have been many good days after that, he says, but that was the best By faith, I know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do you know that truth in your heart? If not, then ask God to open your eyes that you would believe and understand and and look to Jesus Christ and that He would draw you to Himself. I think of another great evangelist. Many of you know some of the stories about George Whitfield, who was probably, many believe he was the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. And there's one chapter of his two-volume biography by Arnold Dallimore that's just so good. Dallimore takes almost a whole page and talks about the great people that George Whitfield had opportunity to preach before, often many of them in the room at one time, through people like Lady Huntington, who would invite the great and the aristocracy of British society to come to her house, and, and amazing people who would join in, people like... Uh, the Marquis uh, of Tweeddale, who is the Secretary of State for Scotland, and William Pitt, we know him by the name of Pittsburgh, the distinguished first Earl of Chatham, and others, Lord North, who became the, the famous Lord North that we know from the Revolutionary War. But very many great of society, and Dalimore gives a quote about what Whitfield stated. He would come to these great estates and preach the gospel to the great of society. And here's a quote from him. It it came to mind because of the, the phrase that is used, I go with fear and trembling, knowing how difficult it is to speak to the great so as to win them to Jesus Christ. I sometimes am ready to say, Lord, I pray thee, have me excused and send by whom thou wilt send. Isn't that a lot what we hear the Apostle Paul saying? In weakness and in fear and trembling, very much aware of his inadequacy. But he goes on, but divine grace is sufficient for me. I can do 
I can do all things through Christ strengthening me. An amazing story, and many of them were converted through Whitfield's preaching. How can we apply this to our lives? Believe Jesus Christ and Him crucified and tell others that truth as well. And as you do so, rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. Ask Him to help you. Ask Him to fill you. Ask Him to empower you. Ask Him to open blind eyes and deaf ears to the truth of the gospel. And if you feel weak, then know that nothing is wrong. That's how we will always feel. If somehow you feel strong in and of yourself, then probably something's not right. We know that we are weak. We know that it is the power of God. We know that we need to fight against the fear of man, but remember that our goal is to live in fear and trembling before the God who changes hearts and lives. Amen. Our Father, we pray that you would lift us up in a sense of dependence on you even this week. And even as we quiet our hearts before you and think of people that we are praying for, maybe some who have uh, been closed to the gospel for years or decades, we pray that you would work in their lives and use us however you would to declare the testimony of God in some way, to be able to tell them about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We pray that if anyone is here who hasn't looked to Jesus Christ, looked to the Savior, dying, rising, exalted, and calling each of us to faith in Him, we pray that you would open the eyes of such a one at this time, that the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus and the salvation that is in Him would be made clear. We pray in His mighty name. Amen.